Let me begin with a word of approbation, approval. Again, thank you for being here. Really mean that. Thank you. Thank you for being here to, to make the study and the understanding and the wrestling with the Word of God a priority in your life. It's just the thing to do. Amen? So thank you so much for that. Secondly, thank you for being on time. Uh, we know that there are a lot of issues, especially on a day like today with a little breeze, and I know that when the wind blows hard, we have to run into the bathroom and fix our hair. It took me 20 minutes just to get my hair straight, but uh, thank you for being here on time. Let's join our hearts in prayer this morning. Father, Father, for the incomparability, the majesty, the depth, the height, the width, the breadth, the mystery, the truth of your word. Father, everything we know about you and understand about you is from one source by the Holy Spirit. As your spirit has taken this word of the communication of your very person, nature, purpose, and has applied it to our hearts, enlivening us and transforming us into the image of Christ. Father, we pray that the work that you have begun will become so great in this church. And Father, among many things, but one of most fundamentally, that we will be a people of your word, a people knowledgeable, receiving, living out, rejoicing, exemplifying the truth of who you are contained in your word. Father, thank you for this study of Hebrews. Father, thank you for encouraging us and challenging us. Father, thank you for causing us to think, to wrestle, to study. Because, Father, these are the issues that you desire us to participate in in order to draw near to you. Father, thank you that we don't come near to you casually. But, Father, we wrestle our way in as you are wrestling with us in this wrestling as you did with Jacob at Jabbok. Father, thank you that the way we come to know you in the greatest way are through the greatest wrestlings. So, Father, take your word today, commend it to our hearts, and us to your service in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come on in, folks. Glad to see you. As we begin this morning, we're going to take the next section of Scripture in Hebrews, and we're going to begin with chapter 2, verse 5, to the end of chapter 2. And you remember last week as we ended the class, we ended with the first of five warnings in Hebrews, where the writer gives us encouragement, he gives us instruction. He tells us about the past work of God through the scriptures of the Old Testament, begins to make contemporary application and a future looking. So Hebrews is a real gathering of the purpose of God in us as we are forced in a good way to not only look at today where I am, but to look at the entire scope of what God has done from the very beginning all the way to the very end, gathering it together in this particular letter or this particular speech. And the primary issue here and the emphasis is this. These people under great and severe persecution were beginning to look away from the centrality of Christ, looking away from Jesus. And it's instructive that as we are experiencing suffering, what often happens as I begin to experience suffering and temptation and difficulty, what happens is, as I begin to think, how can I get better? How can I get out of this? How can I, something about me, and it begins to become an opportunity for the enemy to slowly perhaps 
turn my eyes away from the source of our salvation, the Lord Jesus himself, and begin to cause me to be at least initially a little bit preoccupied with my station, my situation, my circumstances. And then as I do that, a little more concern, a little more worry, a little less hope, a little feeling of fear and frustration and anxiety. And then as I begin to feel that, I begin to even more and more look away. This is the the way that it can often happen. And the great danger the author is talking about is this. Don't look away. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And so he gives five warnings here. And the warnings are concerning the sin, not sins, but the sin of apostasy. And we've already asked several questions here. You know, we've asked, are these warnings to be taken literally or allegorically? How are we to consider these warnings, especially because these warnings are the Word of God? And are we to reduce them in their meaning and their application? Because we see other encouragement which says, for instance, in Philippians 1.6. How many of you know Philippians 1.6? I am persuaded of this very one thing, that he who has begun the good work in you will what? See it all the way through, will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So we have a huge statement of security, perseverance, persistence. And then we get a warning over here. So how do the two come together, or do they come together? Is the security of the believer being called into doubt? And so what we're going to do this morning, I've asked our knowledgeable senior pastor to be with us. And the entire weight of everything that we're going to know and understand will be on his shoulders, not mine. (laughs) But let me explain why I've done this. First of all, He probably has better gifting than I do, and that's not disputed. But what often happens is this, and I have seen this in the classroom when I was a teacher. If when studying a particular issue or subject or explaining something, and there's a little bit of confusion, it's not clear, often it's just downright wisdom to bring in another voice who would explain it and elaborate and give illustration to the answers that would cause the class to see it maybe from a perspective that the original teacher just wasn't getting to. And so what we're going to do is just take a moment or two and ask Keith to come and address this question because here is the question. Last week when we talked about the warning in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, Remember the first warning, first of five, and that's, in my mind, the least of the warnings. The concern was, does that mean, and I'll use the terminology that, and I use this word and I didn't like it, and I don't subscribe to it, but I'm going to use it again only because I used it last week because it's a touch-tone thing. Does that mean that we can lose our salvation? That's the ending of the class last week. And so there were several concerns, which rightly should occur. It's good that you had concerns. It's good that you were worried. It's good that maybe some of you experienced fear because these are good things driving us into the Word and driving us into study and contemplation and prayer and discussion. It's good. And so this morning, Keith is going to pick up on this and completely clear the air. This reminds me when we did a class for the School of the Word on marriage a number of years ago. Peter did most of the teaching. Bill did a significant portion of the teaching. And then right when they got up to the part on sex, they both bailed and dumped the topic on me. Seven children. Seven children. 
Well, I do. I, well, I do have to say I'm better qualified to speak on that topic than I am on this one. So, uh, actually, it was it was an interesting thing to hear uh, what Peter was sharing in here last Sunday morning, and then what I would turn around and be sharing downstairs last Sunday morning as well, and. So interesting that the Lord had arranged for all that. We didn't pre-plan any of that. We, we don't sit in staff meetings and, and say, let's, let's you and me try and be as totally confusing as possible Sunday. <laughs> you say one thing, I'll say the other. Yeah, that works. Um, but we do that naturally, Peter says. Well, here, here's, the, here's the challenge before us. Uh, this, and I, I want to lead into this just by saying quickly, and I'm not intending to, to do an elaborate study on this. This is a subject that... You cannot study casually. So if there's anyone here this morning who says, I just want to give a quick perusal of the dynamics that are involved in Scripture in this category of warnings and how they can be real and security and how it can be real. If we're secure, why do we need to be warned? If you're going to look at that casually, then you might as well put in a headset right now and ignore everything I'm going to say and don't bother to study the subject. Okay, now here's my warning to us in that category is some of us form passionate decisions and positions on things that we've never really studied a whole lot of. I mean, people will come into our office frequently on a subject like divorce and remarriage, and, man, they hold a position that they're going to beat you with. And, and quickly you find yourself introducing them to half a dozen passages that they've never considered. Okay, well, you're not ready to have a position yet. So in some regard, we want to study this out. We're going to make available to you some materials today, but I just, I'll just reference it first by saying this. Uh, there's a fellow named Thomas Schreiner who has written a large body of information on warnings in Scripture. Schreiner would be a Reformed theologian. Schreiner would be one who believes in the security of the believer. Yet, his position is that the warnings in Scripture are real, and they're to be treated like they're real. Not treated like, well, they don't apply it in some way because I'm a believer. Now, Schreiner analyzes, in the paper that we make available to you today, Schreiner analyzes four other positions that other people take. Now, just, I want to just give you some of the pedigree of some of the names that would be in some of these uh, other positions. John Wesley would be in one of these positions. I, Howard Marshall, would be in a different position than this man, Charles Stanley, R.T. Kendall, would have another position. Zane Hodges would be in agreement with them, but not in agreement with Thomas Schreiner, not in agreement with us either. Um, Roger Nicole, John Owen, and Wayne Grudem would be in a camp of thought on a response to how to bring these thoughts together. Okay, now you don't, you don't have this when you're all looking at me like you're looking for it. You don't have this copy yet. Uh, that one is just Thomas Schreiner's position. What we make available to you today is three pieces of paper recognizing that not everybody's willing to read this much. Uh, the first is a very helpfully, uh, simply synthesized thought on some of the salient issues to this subject that Evan put together for us. The second one that Annette just referenced that starts with page 50-something is Thomas Schreiner's position, which would be the position that we would be in agreement with. Uh, the longer paper that's going to be available to you is about 31 pages worth of paper, which is a synthesized of a book that's this big, on the position that holds other views. It presents all the positions on this subject. And then you end up with the end of the article is that. It tells you Schreiner's position. Um, so there's a variety of stuff there for you to study. Um, let, let me start with Acts chapter 27 just for a second. Turn to Acts chapter 27. Here is, I, I think... The, the issue that we would be in agreement with that would f- foster Peter to say what he said last week and would cause me with what I said last Sunday morning to be in agreement with what he said, okay? Uh, even though it may sound as though those two positions cannot get along with each other. And, and he said this last week, and I just reiterate it. There's, there's a realm in which God does things out of his godness that sort of blows the circuitry on us because we're just not equipped for God-like thinking. Uh, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So in that his thoughts being higher, we immediately enter into a realm of of some mystery or some dynamic that God holds information that we don't hold, that when he brings an explanation, it makes absolute sense because he's got all the data. 
You and I got bits and pieces of it, and then we go to make a decision based on the bits and pieces of our information, and we go, wait a minute. How can this and that both be true? All right, well, the first thing we've got to be able to do is recognize God has a position on things that you and I don't have all the insight on. So we might bump into some mystery. We might bump into some dynamics in the Bible that are bigger than our abilities. That's okay. Be comfortable with that. Um, so let me just start with, with the thought here that I think that's the most important thing I'd want to connect us with. Is we started last week saying in, in the downstairs, God begins a work, right? By his foreknowledge, he has predestined. And those who he's predestined, he's called. And those who he's called, he's justified. And those who he's justified, he will also glorify. So we have this picture in Scripture of God making this promise to those whom he foreknows. So in advance, God has made a move and a decision toward us who will ever believe. And that process begins with God's promise. And over here, it ends with God fulfilling his promise. So that's absolutely what Scripture says. What God begins, God finishes. So we have this great presentation of assurance in that teaching. What the Bible doesn't say is that God doesn't use means to get us from here to there. God uses means to get us from here to there. Right, so we're going to look at some means uh, in a couple of weeks in Peter, where Peter's talking about faith, our faith being tested and refined by fire, so that at the end, it's going to result in a, in a salvation, at the end of our lives. So immediately, the Bible's presentation of faith is that faith is a means to getting here. So therefore, the Bible can turn around then and warn and say, anybody who doesn't have faith at this point isn't getting in. Because faith is a means. Prayer is a means of getting from here to there. Right? Uh, whether it was Paul asking for prayer or Jesus praying for Peter. I mean, you realize Peter is Peter's called by God. There couldn't be anything more clear in Scripture. We don't have to guess whether Peter was, was a Christian or not. Right? Right? So you have to guess about everybody else. When the Bible tells you that they're Christians, you can go with that. But Peter is about to be sifted by Satan. And Jesus says something, remember? Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Does that mean faith can fail? The faith that God authors, that God gives to us, that he originates in us, that needs to take us all the way to the end? Does Jesus teaching that faith can fail? Because it sounds like we have assurance that it's not going to fail. Or what if the reason for it not failing is that Jesus is praying for Peter? That's the means through which his faith does not fail. But just by me saying that he's praying, I've immediately introduced into our minds the possibility that, okay, so you're saying that God's promise can't fail, right? He starts it, he finishes it. But my next, my, my next question, though, is can the means fail? And that's what we're all asking. We're asking whether the means can fail along the way. All right, now, the Bible doesn't go into an explanation like this. Uh, I can logically tell you this, just from logic standpoint. If the promise cannot fail, then that means the means cannot fail either. So the means are successful, but the means are necessary, and the means are effective. So when there's prayer, it actually affects something that makes the promises occur. Faith actually is a means to inheriting the promises. So that faith matters in our lives. It's not as though you can just kind of say, which I I think there's some sloppy theology out there that just kind of has this position that, well, you know, if if you believe in the beginning, and, and some guys that you would respect actually say something that sounds like this, it doesn't matter whether you even walk away because God's going to be faithful. Okay, you're grabbing one aspect of truth and ignoring another one when you say that. Because the Bible doesn't ignore the means under the end. So the Bible doesn't say, hey, it doesn't matter whether you believe, it just matters whether God's faithful. No, it does not say that. It says it matters that you believe and that God is faithful. But what if God will be faithful to make sure you believe? 
Okay, well, now the God who made the promises is also involved in the means as well. All right, so this is kind of what we're playing with, this, this idea that God uses means to get us to the end. In Acts chapter 27, you see, you see this unfold in a story where, remember, Paul is sailing to Rome. Uh, it's wintertime. They should have set in to harbor. They didn't. Paul warns them. Uh, this is going to be loss of life if we set out here. They go ahead and they set out anyway. And, the, and sure enough, a storm blows up. It lasts for days, and it's a dangerous situation, and everybody's about to die. All right, look in verse 21. Uh, Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you have listened to, you, you have listened to me and not have... I'm sorry. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold... God has granted you all those who sail with you. All right? You see that? This is a promise of God. This is God, something God has ordained. He breaks into Paul's world and says, Paul, I'm doing this. No one on this boat is going to die. You got my word on it. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have, told, as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and about, found about 20 fathoms, a little farther, and they took a sounding again. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ships and let it go. All right, do you see the same dilemma that we're talking about right here? God said no one's going to die. Paul turns around and warns them as they're getting off the boat. If you get off, we're not going to make it. But I thought God said they were going to make it. God said no one is going to be lost. Right? Does this sound like Romans? No one falls out. Does it sound like John? No one can snatch them from my hand. And then along the way, warnings. Unless you do this, you're not going to make it. Does that sound like that's what Hebrews is going to introduce us to? Right, so there are means through which God uses. And means in this category in Acts was you're going to need to submit to what God said. You're going to need to obey what he said and do what he said. Otherwise, you're going to die. Now, is that a real warning? But I thought, wait, 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 wait. You're all shaking your head yes. I thought God said they're going to make it. So is there really a possibility that they can't make it if God said they're going to make it? Isn't that an empty warning? Isn't Paul just... Is he misinformed? See, where Peter's going to go with this, and I'm not going to go here this morning, but where Peter's going to go with this is that the warnings are intended to be treated like they're real as a means to affecting us the way they're intended to affect us so that we don't get off the boat. The moment you treat the warnings like, they're not real, they couldn't really happen, well, then you're going to get off the boat, aren't you? And now there isn't a means unto an end. There's just some mysterious promise, and it doesn't matter what you and I do. Look, Reformed theology doesn't teach that it doesn't matter what you and I do. Because God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what we do. That's not, that's not good theology. It does matter what we do. Well, Keith, how can it matter, though? If God knows the beginning from the end and he's promised and he's secured the end from the beginning, how can it matter? Okay, well, let's you and I get together in heaven and discuss that question. Because <laughs> at this point, I don't know that we've got enough information to answer it. And I certainly don't have enough intelligence to answer it. But all I know is this. 
the Bible treats both of them as real and important. I have to treat them as real and important. I have to enjoy, embrace, and benefit from the security of God at work to accomplish that which he has begun, he will finish. And along the way, I have to take into a realm that a means of God finishing what he began is a warning to me. Now, God's at work in this, and, and, and I don't want to take forever on this. Um, look, at, look at Jude, because Jude is going to give us a little bit of the other side of this warning. And, and quite honestly, as I think Peter's right in saying this, we spend, we spend theologically much more time on the assurance dynamics in the Bible than we do on the warning dynamics in the Bible. I don't know that I could off the top of my head say what the balance in Scripture is. There's a lot of warnings in Scripture, not just in Hebrews. There's a lot of warnings in Scripture. There's a lot of if you do this kind of language in Scripture. Uh, We would tend, and I think rightly so, to put the accent on what God has done and what God has promised and the God who uh, is in charge of the universe. That's where the accent, I believe, goes. It doesn't go on what we do goes on what God has done and what God has promised. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to be said about what we do. There's, what we do is important. Look in, in Jude. You see, again, this, this same tension that we saw in Acts, and we'll see all over the Scripture, verse 20. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, right? If I just stop right there, that's a means, isn't it? Praying in the Spirit is a means of you taking responsibility, as this passage is telling us to do, to keep yourselves in the love of God. That's in your lap. You're called to do that. Do we treat that verse like, well, it doesn't really matter, see, because I've read Romans 8. I know that everybody who begins this process ends up in the end. So I don't need to regard these passages. Listen, to do that is to say that there is no realm of mystery. We understand everything absolutely, and therefore only the Bible passages that fit my limited insight are the ones that I'm responsible to read and obey. No, I'm responsible to read and obey this passage, even though I'm aware of Romans 8. I'm responsible. Now, I keep reading, though. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority and do you see in this passage right here you and I don't get permission to dismiss one for the sake of the other keep yourselves and then immediately following to him who is able to keep you all right, now here's where I think that there's, this is a little more mixed together than I'm making it. It's not just that, like God's in charge of the promise at the beginning and the finish line. And you and I are in charge of the means. Right? Probably a good Arminius would, would hold to a view like that. Where the, the accent is being placed upon you and boy how confident does that make you. Well, here would be where the scriptures, I think, would more bear witness. God is in charge of the starting line, the finish line, and the means as well. So he is interfering with you, right? Whether it's Peter's being prayed for by the Son of God that his faith would not fail. I believe Peter got special dispensation that you and I don't get. I believe the Son of God continues to intercede for us. We pray for one another. Those are means that God is using to strengthen our faith. When we study 1 Peter, we're going to find out faith is so important that it's going to be at the end of the race that all along the way, God is messing with it all along the way to make sure, he's making sure that that faith stays viable and 
and growing and in him. Now, one of the means by which he does that is testing it, putting it in fire and refining it and stretching us and forcing us to make use of faith. So, you know, sometimes we want our life to be free from suffering. Um, You don't get to have that choice. And here's why. Because God is going to work in your life to make sure that the faith that is necessary to be at the end of the race is there at the end of the race. And he's going to make you use your faith. And he's going to put your life in such condition that you have to use faith. Why is God doing that? Well, when we read 1 Peter, we're going to find out. Because God is intent on there being faith in your life in the end. So the idea that, well, yeah, but I believed in the beginning. And then I just kind of, you know, I, there is no faith in me. Somewhere along the race here, I've just, no, I don't have any faith in God. I've just lost my faith in God. Okay, if that's the case, then when you finish the race, the warning tells you, you will not enter into glory. Examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Now, what does that do for me? Well, I believe if you're one who is in the Romans 8 chain of God, it's going to have this effect on you. It's going to make you examine your faith, and it's going to make you make some adjustments in what you're aiming at believing and practicing so that your faith remains to the end, which is what God intended it to do. But you're going to ask the question, what if I don't? Is there a possibility that I, I won't do that? I'll just walk away. All right, now you've raised this question. And, and everybody can banter about an, an, a, an explanation for this. But we argue this from our own experience and from other people's experiences. We look at our life, we look at somebody else's life, we say, man, I know a guy. And he started like this. And he believed this. And he walked this way for a long time. There was a lot of good things going on in his life. And where is he today? He don't believe in God. He's not following God. He has totally walked away from the faith. All right. There is so much. I mean, how much of you guys would say you 100% understand this? Right, do you understand this is a perfectly put together word? It, it, it's inspired by God. It holds together from the beginning to the end. Okay, I don't 100% understand this, and I'm even giving the Holy Spirit to help me in that regard, and I still don't fully understand it. If I walk up to the book of Joe, how many of you recognize you don't fully understand Joe? This is a perfectly put together. This is a fallen individual, confusing as all get out. The Bible says I don't even know my own heart. I guarantee I don't know his. I'm coming to his life, though, with some casual observations from a distance in the cheap seats way up in the nosebleed section, and I'm saying, this guy's a believer. You don't know that. You can't know that. But I see some evidence. That's good, and that's important, because the Bible says the evidence for you ought to be something you're examining, because that evidence ought to bear witness to whether your faith is real or not. Okay, so we, maybe we can do that with his life. Well, to some degree we can. But can we really know whether this guy is elect, been born again, spirit of God dwells in him, or whether he's just externally doing some decent things? I mean, the Bible even goes so far as to say that those who were non-elect were prophesying and doing miracles in the names of Christ, name of Christ. So you, you've got some challenges there to go come to the book of Joe and form a position that says Joe drifted away, therefore people can drift who were once really believers, can drift from God and no longer be believers. Really? You're preaching that from the book of Joe? (laughs) You don't know Joe well enough to know that. And you don't know all the factors that are going on well enough to know that. Man, don't form a doctrinal position on Joe. Form it from here. Because you're going to have a hard time forming that from here. But, But what about all the warnings? See, the warnings say that you can fall away. The warnings don't stand by themselves, though. The warnings stand alongside assurance passages all over the place. Matter of fact, Peter's going to go through that when you look at Hebrews. So there's, you have to, to make sense of both the assurance dynamics that are all throughout Scripture and the warning dynamics. You have to hold them both because they're both there, and you're going to introduce a tension that's there, and we're going to have to be okay with that tension. It really is there in the Bible. 
But I, I'm with Peter. There'd be some others who would, would form some different views on, on why the, uh, the warnings are in Scripture, who they apply to, and how they apply. But I, I think just like prayer and faith are a genuine, effective means that God uses and he's involved with to accomplish his end, I think the warnings are that way as well. They're intended to make you sit up in your chair. They're intended to make you look at your life carefully. They're intended to throw a little bit of sobriety into how you've been living your life. They're supposed to do that. So if you have this feeling that, well, that just doesn't, mm, that doesn't make me feel comfortable because all the assurance passes and they make me feel like no matter how out of control, no matter how many stupid decisions I'm making, no matter what I'm doing in my life, I'm going to make it. And I like the way that feels better than what you're saying to me. Okay, but in the midst of your comfort with being disobedient to God, you know what feeling you need so that God's end is going to come to pass in your life? You need to be disturbed. You need to be warned. You need to be made to feel like, I better take a closer look at who I am and what I believe. And the warning passages, if you treat them like real warnings, they do that to you. Right? But there is a little bit of some tension here, and it's, it's not an easy thing to, to come to a conclusion on. And I obviously wouldn't be suggesting that you just come easily to a position on that. I think you need to study you need to look carefully at it. Um, I don't know how many guys in here are really bothered by this subject. If it bothers you, then you need to study it. If it lights you up when it gets mentioned, because you're one of those passionate, you know, you need to be telling people that they can lose it, dude. And the fact that you don't puts them in peril. Um, all right, I'm cool with telling them. I'm cool with warning them as long as you can get real cool with giving them the assurance that the Bible gives. See, this is what bad theology does. Bad theology either doesn't admit that the other passages are there, it sort of ignores them so it it can build its own position for one side or the other, Um, or it it admits that they're there, but it just doesn't choose to offer any explanation for them. It just offers a big explanation for the side of the argument that it wants. That's bad theology. I'd rather get to a place where I say, you know what, there's uh, 64 scriptures on this side of, the, of this issue, and there's 47 on this side uh, of the issue, and they do argue with each other. And as best I can, I'm obligated to synthesize them together. And where I can't bring them together, I do not have permission to erase any of them. I have to just stand and say, honestly, you know what, I can't explain every scripture. But what I see in the scriptures that I can explain on both sides leads me to conclude this. And my position would be the same as Peter's. We are not in different positions. He was not saying something last week that I disagree with. Um, but I understand why that might be a challenge for some. And, so, and, and one of the things I like about this article, it's a very long article, and I know everybody's not going to want to read something this long, is Thomas Schreiner analyzes five positions on these sets of scriptures. And he does so in a way that I think is, is helpful because he's going to agree with and disagree with all the positions, which if you're honest, you're going to do that too. You, you may not end up where Schreiner ends up. You might, Wayne Grudem has written as, well, not as much, but he's written quite a bit on his position that Schreiner takes to task and disagrees with Wayne Grudem about. Hey, listen, I, I wish I had an ounce of Wayne Grudem's intelligence. I'd be happy with just a piece of it. And but when I look at his position, I look at Schreiner's position, I, I don't see his as clearly as I see Schreiner's. But you might read Grudem and go, no, Keith, I really, I really get Grudem in this. John Piper would be a little bit of a hybrid between Wayne Grudem's position and Thomas Schreiner's position. These are all guys who are much smarter than I am. But as you look through this, I think what I, I like about the article is, is it puts you in touch with subjects like this don't... You know, don't form a first-grade position over it and then decide we're going to fight. Let's fight. I'm going to fight. I've been to first grade on this. You want to fight? Come on. I can't believe what you said, Peter, last week. Let's fight. Um, you know, at least get to third grade before we fight. You know, at least do a little bit of real study in here and, uh, and, and read through some dynamics that bring both sides together fairly. So that you can see, okay, no matter what I conclude in this, I do understand why people 
hold some views on the other side of the fence. Uh, this is a challenging issue in Scripture. So we give room for one another to have some uh, variety there in that. I think I took your whole class, Peter. Sorry about that. Any, any questions? Uh, please, questions. All the way in the back, Tiffany. Yes, if you want to call in, we've got several available here. I don't know if we've got enough for everybody to take, maybe one per household, and we still wouldn't have enough. But if you want that article and we don't have it, just maybe call the office. Evan's the guy to, to ask for a copy of it, uh, and we can have it available for you next week. We can provide the website for you. You could go to it and print it out yourself. Um, who else? Questions? Yeah. Yeah, the cutaway passages are some real challenging ones. That one's probably not as hard as some others. I'm glad you didn't bring up the harder ones that I really can't answer. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I think there's a realm in which God's sovereign purpose was being worked out through the nation of Israel. But then you have a New Testament teaching that says they are not all Israel who have descended from Israel. And so you have a removal, a functional group that God was using to, to show himself to the world. They were the, you know, Romans 9, they were the, the keepers of the promises and the covenants were all given to Israel. But just because that identified group was given that special privilege, uh, it doesn't mean that they were elect according to the faith of Abraham, which Romans clarifies as well. So I, I think in some of those passages, you're, you're talking about a removal, uh, not from the realm of the faith of Abraham, but from the function with which God was using the, the nation of Israel to accomplish his means on earth to declare his gospel. Um, the, the harder passages are those whose names have been removed from the book of life, which I will not venture into. <laughs> Peter will answer all those next week. <laughs> uh, any other quick question? I'm let Peter finish this off. <laughs> First of all, do we appreciate this? Thank you. <clears throat> Just wanted to wor- leave us with a word of encouragement, hopefully. And I think this applies to very much how we walk our lives t- together as a body of believers united in Christ. Just wrote a thought here. We are to walk together in harmony giving others in the church the right to hold certain positions. Now, when we say certain positions, we're not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, he died on the cross, rose. We don't give a right for people to hold that differently and still remain believers. Okay. Holding certain positions somewhat differently, but us walking together in humility. So what we're talking about is great, great mystery. So let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to absolutely the greatest mystery of all mysteries. And I believe if we can get clarity and fullness of understanding of this most fundamental issue of mystery, then all these other mysteries will be a piece of cake. So would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. If we have a handle on the depth and the width and the breadth and the height of this mystery, every other mystery in the Word of God will be a piece of cake. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Here's the mystery. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us. If you have a handle sufficiently to understand, to explain, to fully comprehend and walk in the good of that mystery, God loves me. If you have the handle on that mystery, then I believe you have a handle on every mystery in the Word of God. But until... I get a handle on that mystery. I will just have to be at home and comfortable 
with all the other mysteries. Father, thank you so much. And Father, we do pray that our minds certainly are quizzical because you have given us not only the ability but the necessity of asking questions and knowing because it has to do with knowing you. But Father, our questions are not to go beyond your answers. And Father, our questions are to be comfortable with your answers. But Father, the greatest question and the greatest preoccupation of our minds is not to be on how can this and that and the other and all that, but the greatest. Why is it that you are a God of love like this? And how may I walk in a manner worthy of this great love? Not only with you, but with you as I walk with your children, receiving and giving, participating together in that love so that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, make this the very issue of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So next week, chapter 2, verse 5, to the rest of the chapter, verse 18. Thank you so much for coming.